2 Peter. Now, I, I have to confess, as I began to put together the Bible study here on 2 Peter, initially, I thought, I thought, well, I can teach the entire chapter in, in one week. I thought, I can get through all 21 verses in one week, and then I began to kind of start to write down some thoughts, and I thought, okay, I can get through the first 11 verses in one week without any trouble. That shouldn't be too hard. And then I really began to refine my thoughts, and I go, all right, I can get through the first four verses in our time together. Uh, and then there was a moment that I thought, I don't even know if I'm going to get through the first verse, but, but we are going to get through, I, I had to push it back up, we're going to get through the first four verses this morning. And, and uh, you know, sometimes you'll see me take a large section of scripture, other times I'll kind of refine it to just a few verses. And, and it really just depends on how the Lord's leading and how deep we really want to kind of dive into something. And I think the, sec the book of Second Peter is extremely rich with information that we need to know as believers. So we're going to sort of take our time, at least in this portion of it, and get through what we need to see, what the Lord wants us to learn from that. Just by way of review, uh, when Peter wrote his first letter, he was writing to a group of believers who were scattered because of their faith. They were enduring persecution for their faith. And Peter wrote the letter of 1 Peter to encourage them, uh, but also to instruct them. He wanted to encourage them in their suffering, but he also wanted to tell them how they should be living their life. And he encouraged them with the reminder of their, their heavenly inheritance. He talked about the living hope, the hope that was alive in Jesus Christ that they had. But he also instructed them in things like submission to government and wives towards husbands and slaves towards masters. And he told husbands how to treat their wives. So there's a lot of instruction that went along with that. And he told them that even though they're suffering, in this first letter, Peter reminded believers that Christ suffered also. That there will be difficulty, there will be suffering, but you, you're not suffering alone. Christ understands he suffered as well. But he also told them suffering was temporary. That there's coming a day where there would be no more suffering and that it was only temporary. And even if you find yourself in that difficult circumstance, the Lord's doing something there. There's something he may be working in you. So even though they were suffering, in his first letter, Peter reminded believers that Christ suffered. He talked about that. And now as we come to Peter's second letter, as now when we get to the second letter, uh, we're going to see that in chapter 1, Peter's still doing some reminding. He's still giving them some instructions and we're going to also see that as we come to chapter 2, Peter's going to shift and give them some more warnings about, about uh, false teachers. We'll see that in chapter 2. It's almost as if Peter knows that, that right now the church is being persecuted, uh, that Satan is trying to wipe out the church through persecution. It's almost as if he knows that once that doesn't work, that the, the persecution, the difficulty is going to come from within the church. That Satan will, uh, instead of trying to destroy it from the outside, he'll destroy it from the inside. He'll, he'll take the word of God and he'll warp it, he'll diminish it, he'll try to remove it, he'll try to bring other things and, and place other things on a pedestal just so it'll simply take the attention off the Lord. Then in the final chapter of Second Peter, Peter will confirm the Lord's promises and we'll see that he's going to speak of that future day of the Lord. So if you would follow along with me as I read through the first four verses of Second Peter, chapter one, verses one through four. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, 
that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now I understand when I read that, you may get part of it. I understand at least if you're like me, you read that at first read, you go, I don't really have any idea what he's talking about. It sounded like I should know what he's talking about. It sounded really cool and important, but I'm not really sure I understand it. Well, I want to take some time this morning to dig in, dive in just a little bit deeper. The first verse tells us who wrote the letter. He lists his name right there for us, Simon Peter. Simon Peter's the author. And although among Bible scholars, there seems to be some controversy about who wrote the book of 2 Peter, and, and you might even consider it probably the, the most controversial authorship in the New Testament, uh, I want you to know that I don't have any trouble believing that it's 2 that, that, that Peter. It's Peter that wrote this book. I have no trouble. I've come to that conclusion. It's not a problem. I've looked at both sides. I've looked at the arguments. I don't have an issue with that. I have learned there comes a time in every Christian's life where you must settle in your mind what you believe about this book. You see, there comes a time where, or, or maybe if I should say it this way, early on in my Christian faith, I wondered, is the Bible really accurate? Is it really God's word? Perhaps it's been changed through the centuries. How do I know that what I'm reading is really what I need to? Could I be wasting my time reading something else? And I did the research. I dug deep. I wanted to find out where did it come from? How did we get it? How is it preserved? What do the manuscripts say? Are there any original manuscripts? There are none, by the way. But we have copies and copies and copies. And I started doing all that research. And I had to come to a place where I said, all right, I've looked at all the research. I'm going to hold this up as God's word in my life. I'm going to quit arguing about it. I'm going to quit debating about it. I'm just going to accept it as the fact that this is God's word to man. And I believe God is sovereign enough to preserve this over the centuries. For if it was God's word to man, and it is God's words to man, he's not going to let it fall by the wayside. So I have come to that conclusion. So I have no problem looking at 2 Peter and going, yeah, Peter wrote the book. It makes sense to me as I read it and study it as well. You have to come to your own conclusion on what this book is. I would suggest that you figure it out. Because if it is the word of God, then you need to learn it and know it and live by it. If you conclude it's not the word of God, then quite honestly, you're wasting your time here this morning. I really can't help you because you're going to disagree with just about everything I say. And that's okay, you have that right. But for me and my life, this is God's word. That's why we teach it the way we teach it. That's why I live it the best that I can. I want to learn it. I want to know it. That's why we go a little bit deeper sometimes into it to say, how do we apply this to our life? Now... Where does this book stand in your life? Is it just another book or is it truly God's word? I would encourage you to figure that out. Don't take my decision and make it yours. Make your own decision. Make your own mind up. Now, if you'll notice with me there in the first verse, Simon Peter wrote this letter. Notice he lists both of his names, both the name he was given at birth and the name that Jesus gave him. Jesus said to him after he declared, after Peter declared Jesus to be the son of the living God, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. The Lord has revealed this to you. I also say that you are Peter, which means stone. And he went on to say, on this rock, I will build my church. So Jesus changed Peter's name from from Simon to Peter. Yet in his letter here, Peter wants us to know that he is Simon Peter. And I can't help but wonder or ask the question, why did you list both names? Because I got to tell you, if I got to know Jesus the way Peter did, and we, we hung out, and I, in the, you know, like we walked on water together, and we were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, Peter, and Jesus said to me, hey, Rob, your name's going to be now this. I'm forgetting Rob, and I'm going by whatever he called me. I'm going to drop the Rob part. But I, I can't help but wonder, why did he list both? And, and my only speculation is perhaps it was to remind everybody and even himself where he came from. 
Maybe he wanted to remember, where this is where I came from. I was Simon, but now I'm Peter. You see the word some scholars suggest Simon, it means shifty sand. Peter means stone, or perhaps even small rock. So he went from shifty sand to small rock. Maybe he doesn't want to forget that. Maybe he wants to remember who he is in Christ and what Christ has done through him. Well, there in the first verse, and this is important also, Peter refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I think the order is important, and I think the words there that he describes himself are extremely important. Would you consider yourself a bondservant of Jesus Christ? A bondservant. Well, I don't really know. What does a bondservant do? What does that really mean? A bondservant was a slave who had the opportunity to be free. He'd been given his freedom. He had served his time. It was in in Israel under the law. It was six years. The seventh year, you would be set free. He'd served his time. But instead of leaving his master, because he loved his master, he loved his family, and the life that he had while underneath of his master, he could instead refuse his freedom. And he could then claim allegiance to his master. And the bondservant would be forever pledged to his master, never, ever again to have freedom. He would permanently give up his freedom. In fact, Exodus chapter 1 tells us the procedure. It says, Basically, that if a slave says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. In other words, this bond servant, this bond slave, this one who has freedom says, you can go free. He says, I don't want to go free. I want to serve you forever. And this is the way that Peter is describing his relationship with the Lord. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A bondservant or a bondslave is someone who willingly chooses to serve his master for the rest of his or her life. There was no future freedom available. You can't go, I'm going to test it out. Well, if he gets bad or mean, then I'm out of here. No, that wasn't an option. You were there forever. Do you consider your relationship with the Lord? Do you see yourself as a bondservant or a bondslave? This is what Peter's saying. And to help you answer that question, I want to tell you a little bit more about what a bondservant is. In the Greek, the word is doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos. And William Barclay, a famous commentator, I want to tell you what he has to say about it. He said this, to call a Christian the doulos of God, to call a Christian the bondservant of God, means that he is inalienably possessed by God. That means you're unable to be taken away. You are, you are inalienably possessed. He has you. There, there's no way of removing you. In the ancient world, a master possessed his slaves in the same way he possessed his tools. A servant can change his master, but a slave cannot. In other words, he, he became the, 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 the bondservant became the possession of the master. Are you God's possession? Does he possess you or is he your God when you need him? Or are you the one directing him? You see, the Christian inalienably belongs to God. He went on, he said, to call, the, call a Christian the doulos of God means that he is without reservation or limitation at the disposal of God. No limitations, no reservations. God, whatever you need. In the ancient world, the master could do what he liked with his slave. He had the same power over his slave as he had over his inanimate possessions. In other words, you can do what you want with your stuff at home. You can burn it, sell it, keep it, use it, whatever you want. It was in your possession. Literally, the master had the power of life and death over a bondservant. Whatever he wanted, 
If he wanted them to live or die, it was his power. The Christian belongs to God. For God to send him where he will and to do with him what he will. The Christian is the man who has no rights of his own. For all of his rights are surrendered to God. Have you come to the place in your Christian walk where you finally said, Lord, everything I have belongs to you. My life is yours. I can't do it without you. I don't want to do it without you. I know what it looks like without you. Whatever it is that you want me to do. In my own life, I came to that place late one night doing a very difficult situation on my knees. I said to the Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do, Lord. And I said, including be a pastor. I never thought he would hold me true to that. I never thought he would actually call me to be a pastor. But the moment I made that promise, the moment I said, I came to that place of surrender where I became his and really gave him my life is when my life truly changed forever. When I look back, been a Christian a long time, long time, went forward at, I think, eight or ten, you know, grew up in a Baptist school, been all, knew all the Bible verses, but it was that night, that moment, and I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but that moment where I gave my life to him, where it truly, truly started to change, not overnight, little by little, piece by piece, I began to grow and become more like the Lord. He also said to call the Christian a doulos of God means that the Christian owes an unquestioning obedience to God. Unquestioning obedience. Ancient law said that a master's command was a slave's only law. Even if a slave was told to do something which actually broke the law, he could not, was not allowed to protest. For as far as he was concerned, his master's command was the law. There was no option. In any situation, the Christian has but one question to ask. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you, how do you say? How do you want me to handle the situation? Lord, what do you want me to do? He also said to call the Christian the doulos of God means that he must constantly be in service to God. The slave was in constant service to the master. In the ancient world, the slave had literally no time of his own, no holidays, no time off, no set working hours, no leisure. All of his time belonged to the master. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't have time off. He only had it when the master gave it to him. You see, he trusted his master to provide. Nobody could work without rest, so the master would provide rest. That's what a good master would do. The Christian is the same way. Do you trust, do you understand that your life should constantly be in service to God? Whether you're taking care of your kids, whether you're cleaning your home, whether you're out working at your job, whatever it is that you're doing, it doesn't mean you have to change what you're doing. It changes the way you're serving. Are you doing it in service to the Lord? Peter wants us to clearly know he's a bondservant. He's a doulos. He's a slave who's given up his freedom. He loves his master and pledges his allegiance to the master forever. After Peter tells us he's a bondservant. That's when he says, I'm also an apostle. The order is important. If anybody had the right to brag about being an apostle, don't you think it was Peter? If anybody wanted to use the title of apostle, it could have been Peter. For he had spent much time with the Lord. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He walked on water. He had seen the miracles. He'd been there. If anybody wanted to claim that title, it would have been him. Many people today claim the title of apostle as though they possess some kind of special or spiritual power or some kind of special authority. Peter didn't tell us he was an apostle because he wanted to impress us. You don't say you're a bondservant, oh, by the way, I'm an apostle. 
He says, I'm a bondservant, I'm a servant. But the apostle means I'm a sent one. I was sent out by God. So the, the, the focus of this is on the first one. This is who I am. This is what my life looks like. It's in service to the Lord. But I'm also an apostle. He chooses to title himself first as a bondservant. And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm an apostle. Let me just say this, that I don't believe there are apostles today like the 12 original ones. Like I said, there's many people who have titles of apostles. The word means just be sent. It means to be sent out. It means to be sent one. But there is no apostle 12 and apostle. Well, there's a 12th. That was Paul. He took Judas' spot, I believe. There's no 13, 14. Well, I'm the 244th apostle in the succession. No, it doesn't work that way. There's apostles that are sent out today, but they don't have the same power. They don't have the same authority. They didn't walk with Christ like the original 12 did. They don't have that same status. You're not one of the ones that the Lord said, I'm going to build my church on this group of people. It's a different different place. Although people have taken that, kind of let it go, the power of their head. If Peter had a name tag, it would say Peter bondservant, not Peter apostle. Because he wanted you to know that he was a servant first and an apostle second. But we get that mixed up sometimes because we get concerned about titles. And you need to think that I'm important. And Peter, for being important, he said, what did he say he was? A bondservant. I am a slave. And most of us, or some of us, maybe find that offensive. I can't believe you're telling me I have to be a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm not telling you. I'm asking you. Because I'm telling you, there is no better life than serving him. I've done it both ways, personally. I really have. And I can tell you that my life is much, much more at peace, much more joyful as I serve the Lord. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's much, much better. And I would never go back to the way that I had, that I was, that I used to live my life. All right, we're still in verse 1. He says there, To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The recipients of this letter had obtained something. What did he call it? He said, like precious faith. The Greek word for the phrase there, like precious, and it's only used here in the New Testament, it means equal or of the same value. Equal or of the same value. Peter is literally writing to the believer that he has the same faith. He has the, we have the same faith that Peter had. The same salvation that Peter had. Both Jews, Gentiles, you and I have obtained salvation. We've obtained this equal faith with Peter. We got it the same way Peter did. How did we get it? How does it come? Where do we get it from? He tells you right there. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where it came from. This faith, this salvation was obtained not by the efforts of man, but by the righteousness of our God, of Christ. It's his righteousness, not your righteousness. For those of you, some of you I know are always searching for verses about the deity of Jesus Christ, where it says that Jesus is also God. This is a perfect place to find that. Do you see the phrase there that says, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Greek scholars tell us that the way this is written, it means that Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. He's both one person fulfilling both roles. The grammar leaves little doubt that Peter is calling Jesus Christ both our God and our Savior. One person, two roles, he's God and he's Savior. Is Jesus God? It says so right here. Peter said so. He made it very, very clear. So if someone begins to tell you, no, he's not God, he's the son of God, this is one place that you can take them and say, well, wait a minute, it says right here that he's God. Look there in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Like, just like the Apostle Paul's greetings, Peter says, grace and peace. Grace and peace, may it be multiplied to you. And again, I believe the order is very important. It's impossible for you to have peace or impossible to have peace with God or even the peace of God without receiving the grace of God. Grace has to come first. We receive God's grace, then we receive God's peace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve salvation, but God gives it to us when we believe on his son, Jesus Christ. Peace is the effect of that grace. In other words, when I believe on Jesus Christ, and I'm not talking here about like a, a peaceful feeling. I'm talking about a position of peace. We go from being at odds with God to being at peace with God. Our sin separates us from God, but the moment we believe on Jesus Christ, we receive the grace that he's giving us, and now we occupy a position of peace with God, no longer separated by our sins. Peace is the effect of this grace. Grace and peace are only available in Jesus Christ. And this is also a common greeting. Grace being the Gentile or the Roman greeting. Peace being the Hebrew greeting. They would say shalom in Hebrew. This only comes, this grace, this peace, only comes from the knowledge of God and Jesus. There. Let me ask this question. It says something important there. It says grace and peace be multiplied to you. Multiplied. Anybody need more grace and more peace? I could use a little more grace. Even though I know that the scripture tells me I have all the grace I need, I still feel like I need some extra, don't you? What about peace? Do I need a little more peace? I, I need a little bit more. I need a little bit more. Well, how do, how do I get that? He told you right there. How do I get a little more grace and a little more peace? It's multiplied how? Through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. It's multiplied. It's increased through the knowledge of God and of our Lord. Grace and peace is increased. Well, what does that word for knowledge mean? That's, that's the question we need to ask. In the Greek language, there are different words for knowledge. This word is very, very important. This word is called epinosis, and here's what it means. This is what this word for knowledge means. It means an experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge gained by experience. In other words, you, you're experiencing something. It's not just a mere intellectual knowledge. You know an intellectual knowledge? That's when you read a book and you learn something. Like many times you'll, you'll, you'll say you're, at least for me, when I was going through college and, and studying criminal justice, I had several college professors who were criminal justice professors. They had their doctorate degree, but they had never done, worked in the field outside of education. They had, they had a head knowledge, but they hadn't, they hadn't done the job yet. They hadn't experienced it yet. It was something they knew in their head, but they'd never lived it. It's, this is not just a mere intellectual knowledge. It's not something you read on a page or in a book. It's something you know because you've experienced it through a relationship with the Lord. This knowledge is a heart of experience. It's experiencing and knowing who Christ is. It's gained. How do we get this kind of experience? I mean, it was easy for Peter, right? Because he walked with Jesus every day. No problem. Let's walk on water together. Cool, I got it. But how do we get it? We get it through God's word. Through God's word. As we study, as we gain a personal association with him, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we study God's word, you get to know God. It's in God's word where you get to experience God. Which flabbergasts me when I read that many, or I hear that many churches aren't really teaching God's word, then who are you teaching? If you're not learning and you're not growing closer to God through God's word, what are you really learning there? It's multiplied through getting to know God. We do that through his word. I believe that salvation requires a genuine knowledge of a person, of the person rather, and the work of Jesus Christ. 
You have to not just know about Jesus. You have to have a genuine knowledge. You have to have this experiential knowledge that he's talking about. It involves not merely knowing the truth about him, because I can learn that from the page. Someone can tell me the truth, but actually knowing him through the truth of his word. You see, that's the difference, because many times in many churches, they'll, they'll have an altar call. There's nothing wrong with altar calls. And many people will come forward based on a move on their emotion, because they've been moved emotionally, and they hear about Jesus, and they take this, they go, I believe that, but they never experience Christ. They hear that Christ has died on the cross to forgive sins, but they never realize, my sins are forgiven. It's me that he's died for. It's my, it's my relationship with him. It's got to become personal. But not only does this knowledge of God give us multiplied grace and peace, look at verse 3 and see what else it does. As his divine power has given to us, now if you underline in your Bible, I would underline this, his divine power has given to us all things, all things, what kind of things, that pertain to life and godliness. The Lord's divine power has given us what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. You don't need me to do the Greek there. All means all, things means things. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the Lord's divine power, okay? His divine power, that's the same power that spoke the world into existence. That's the same power that created man, the same power that created woman from man, the same power that dug out the valleys and raised, raised up the mountains. The same power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's unbelievable. Are you serious? Everything that I need to know about life is given to me in Jesus Christ? Everything we need to know in godliness has been given to us? We already have it? Sometimes we feel like we're lacking something. You ever feel like you're lacking something? No, you've got it. You're just not using it. It's available. He's not holding back on something. You have all, you ever feel like, well, Lord, I want to be more holy. I want to be more godly. And he says, go, do it. Well, no, I need you to do something. No, I've given you all that you need. I've given you the tools that you need to do that. You have to go do that. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Let me be clear on what Peter's saying. Everything, and that means everything, that we need in life, everything we need to know about godliness has been given to us by Jesus and is found in Jesus. Do you believe that? You see, if you go, I don't believe that, Rob, then I, you, I've lost you. you the rest, everything I'm about to tell you isn't going to make any difference to you. But if you truly believe God's word, and this is God saying, I've given you all that you need. You just have to go use it. Then you're going to go, wow, keep talking. I need to know more. Tell me more. What, I'm missing something here. I'm going to learn something. What do I need? He says, he's called us by glory and virtue. That's not your glory and virtue, is it? That's his glory and virtue. What kind of knowledge would it be if it was based on your glory and virtue? Huh. You don't want that kind of knowledge, at least not based on my glory and virtue. Virtue is moral excellence, by the way. You know, I want his moral, I want the knowledge based on his moral excellence, his glory, who he is, not who I am. Let me see if I can illustrate this to you in a, in a, in a modern translation. In, in my personal life, I am in the, I've, taken, I've taken on a project. I'm going to build a dining room table. Okay, I'm going to build it from scratch. I'm going to build, you know, just going to build this dining room table. The only problem is I really don't, I know a little bit, but I don't know a whole lot about woodworking. And I don't have necessarily all the woodworking tools that I have. But I have a friend of mine who has a, a nice woodworking shop. Okay? And he is working with me and he's helping me build this dining room table. Okay? So in his woodworking shop, as we sit here this morning, all the wood 
at least I hope I ordered it right, all the wood is in the shop, okay? And in his shop is all the tools that we need to build the table. There's all kinds of planers and joiners and saws and all that we need. There's glue, there's screws, everything we need to build this table is there, okay? Now, if I don't ever go there and use those tools that are given to me, is the table going to get built? Well, not unless he builds it for me, but if he builds it for me, then it's not my table, is it? It's his table. But what has to happen? I have to go use the tools. I have to go put in the time. I have to go spend time there. And then over time, I'll, he'll teach me how to use this tool. He'll teach me how to use that tool. He'll show me this trick. He'll show me that trick. We'll learn. And at the end of it, I will have a table that I will have built. You see, it's the same thing when it pertains to everything we need in this life and godliness. You've been given all that you need. Okay? But you've got to go use it. You can leave it sitting on the shelf. I could leave that wood and those tools. They could sit there and rot, and I would never get a table out of it. I've got to go do it. It's all available to me. Anytime you want, come on over. Help, help yourself. You can use it. But if I say, nah, nah, I don't really believe that. Nah, I'm just going to wait and see if it builds itself. I'm just going to just, let it, just let it, leave it there. Let's see if it builds itself. Sadly, that's many Christians' life. God says, I've given you all the stuff that you need for godliness, all the stuff you need to walk faithful. I've given it all to you. And we just go, "Uh, no, I don't believe that. No, that's probably locked when I get there. No, he's not really going to let me in. No, it's not going to work that way. Isn't that sad? We have it all. He's telling us, I've given you everything that you need. Peter is simply saying, through the knowledge of Christ, he's given us all things that pertain to this life. There is nothing that we are lacking. There's nothing you have to beg him for. There's nothing, Lord, if I had this, then I could live godly. No, you've already got all that you need. Lord, but then I could. No, we have all the parts. But here's the catch. Just like my table won't build itself, your life won't build itself. Oh, it will continue on, but it's not going to build itself. You have to invest the time. You have to learn to use the tools that God has given you. You have to learn. And we're going to see as we go on in 2 Peter, God's given us a lot of stuff to use in our walk with him. We're not going to get to it all this morning, but we have to build our lives with Christ. When we go to him and we spend time with him, we get to know him. We get all that we need. He said, let me show you how to use that. You're in that situation. and Let me help you get out of that situation. Let me teach you. But so often... You know what we do? We run to the self-help books of the world. We'll do anything Oprah says. But yet when it comes to the scriptures, the creator, we look and go, ah, it can't be that easy. It can't be that, ah, just getting up early, spending time with God, getting to know him. That, 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 that doesn't solve problems. <laughs> Have you tried it yet? Have you done it? Have you really given it a shot? Well, Rob, where do I start? How do I start this? What do, we, what do we really need to build our life with Christ? Look at verse 4. He says this, by which have been given to us. This is something he's given to us, okay? I'm giving you something else. Exceedingly great and precious promises. Why do I need these? That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Through God's glory and virtue... It tells us right there he's given us exceedingly great and precious promises. Great and precious. This is where we start our building. The promises of God are based on his glory and his virtue and therefore perfectly reliable because God can never compromise 
his glory and his virtue, his moral excellence. They're reliable, they're trustworthy. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, many things are great, which are not precious, such as great rocks, which are of little value. On the other hand, many things are precious, which are not great, such as diamonds and other jewels, which cannot be very great if they be very precious. But here we have promises which are so great that they are not less than infinite and so precious that they are not less than divine. You see, if you talk about great, huge, big, most things that are precious are small. They're worth, they're valuable. A big, huge boulder, what's it worth? Nothing, you can't even move it. A small diamond, it's, it's precious, but it's, it's, it's not great. And he says here in the promises of God, they are huge, they are great, but they are also so very precious. You see, it's the promises of God's word. It's the foundation on which we stand. As a Christian, when someone told you that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you and you believe that you stood on a promise. You, you stood on John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish or should not perish but have everlasting life. You stood on that. I believe that. That's why I'm saved. You stood on that promise. It was very clear to you. Do you know that the promises of God's word number in the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, they are all over the place? Here's, here, here's what it's like. These promises... They're like, they're like gems in a mine. You've got to go in there and get them out. You've got to dig them out. You've got to find them. You've got to polish them up. You've got to hold on to them. You've got to remember them. And then you have to take them out and use them once in a while. It's not just a head knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge, remember? D.L. Moody, as he would study his Bible, he would come across the promise of God. And he would eventually, as he identified it as a promise of God, he would write two letters in the margin. A T and then he would write a P eventually. And the letter stood for tried and proven. He tried the promises of God, and then it, when it proved faithful, he put a P next to it. It's been tried and proven. As he found a promise in God's word, he would try it, test it, and then write the letter T next to it. And then, when that promise proved faithful, he would write P. All throughout his Bible, in the margin, stood the letters T and P. Have you gone to the promises of God's word? Have you dug them out? Have you tried them? I didn't ask if you know them. It's one thing to know them. That's an intellectual knowledge. That Greek word, if you're interested, is gnosko. That's not the word that we're talking about here. That's an intellectual, a, a knowledge that says, have you tried them? Have you applied them to your situation? You see, if you have, I know they're going to prove faithful. I know they're going to prove faithful. There is no other option. Have you tested them? You see, you've got to memorize them. I would encourage you to pray them. You want to know what prayers work? Pray the promises of God. Remind him of what he says in his word. Not because he needs to know it, because you need to know it. I need to know it. Lord, you said you'd never leave me or forsake me. And I'm feeling pretty lonely right now. See if he doesn't prove it faithful. You're right. Something will happen. You will know that he has not left you or forsake you. He will show you. He will teach you. We can be sure that God always keeps his promises. Listen, they are like money in the bank of heaven. It's yours. You can cash it in whenever you want. You have it. You can hold it. You hold on to it. You get to use it. But sadly, sometimes as Christians, we memorize them. We learn them, but we never test them. We never take them out of our wallet, so to speak, and apply them to our situation. We just leave them in our mind. It never becomes part of our life. I remember hearing the story 
about Corrie Tin Boone, if you're familiar with her. Her and her family, during the difficult days of Hitler's regime, they were Dutch, they were hiding Jews, uh, they would take the word of God. And they would take out a page or a piece or a part and they would hide it in their shoe. Literally, because, they, because it was illegal for them to have it, they would hide it in their shoe. And they would walk around with the word of God in their shoe. They had a promise of God in their shoe. And then when times got difficult, when they saw each other struggling, they would look at each other and say, hey, Corey, what's in your shoe? Hey, Betsy, what's in your shoe? Hey, Mom, what's in your shoe? Hey, Dad, what's in your shoe? They literally stood on the promises of God. Physically. Now, you don't have to put them in your shoe, but are you standing on them spiritually? Are they, do they really mean something to you? I can remind you of God's promises. I can give you the verses. You can read the verse on Facebook when someone puts it up there. But unless you've mined that promise out of the word of God, and it's become your promise from God to you, it's going to go in one ear and out the other. Don't you know that? Do you know where you're going to get, do you know where you're going to be able to, uh, I'll say, mine the promises of God? I think there's two predominant places. One is church. One is church. I'll dig something up here because I don't have to, I can't mine it for you, but now you have to go home and then take it and make it your promise. The other place is in your quiet time. When you find a time to get alone, and I would encourage you to ask, Lord, would you give me a promise this morning or this evening or tonight or wherever, whatever that is? Ask him, start your time with that. Lord, would you give me a promise out of your word and see if he doesn't? And then I ask, encourage you to take that. Make that your own. Write it down. Put it on a note card. Put it on your screensaver. Whatever you have to do to hold on to it. Make it your password. I don't know. Whatever it is that you have to do to say, this is my promise. I'm holding on to this verse right now. This is, I'm holding on to it. And then you have to test it. Don't forget to test it. Don't just make it intellectual knowledge. I've got, to, I've got to apply that in my life. I've got to put it there. In Christ, we have all that we need. But did you catch there at the end of verse 4 what it brings us? By which have been giving us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Through these promises, it says you may be a partaker of the divine nature. A partaker of the nature. A partaker is one who participates with another in some enterprise or matter or joint concern. It's a partner, if you will, an associate, one who joins with. So through the promises of God, you and I can participate, be partakers of the divine nature of God. That's what Peter's telling us. Just let that sink in for a minute. When you take a promise of God and you hold it and you learn it and you apply it to your life, you're actually becoming a participant, a partaker of God's divine nature. That's what Peter's talking about here. You go, wow, Peter, this is some really deep stuff. Yeah, you can go, I'm only scratching the surface here. You can go a lot deeper with this. The word of God is, is what reveals to us the nature of God. And as you take hold of his promises through his word, you're literally taking hold of God himself. You ever, felt someone, you ever heard someone say, well, God seems far away. God seems distant. Ask the next question to yourself if you're saying that. Where, what am I doing with God's promises? Have I tucked them in the back, in my back pocket and not using them? Or am I remembering them and praying them? You see, it's when you remember his promises, when you pray them, when you realize, I, I, he, he, I am forgiven. He says he's never leave me. He promises to complete the good work that he started in me. When you take these promises, they become yours. As he enlightens them to you, you go, wow, God's got a plan for me. 
He knows what's he, I can hold on to this. It's amazing. When you're holding the promises of God by his power and his strength, you are able to overcome. Literally what it says there is the lust of the flesh. You're able to overcome the corruption in the world through the lust of the flesh. Well, Rob, I'm, I'm struggling with something in my life sinful. and I, I just can't seem to, to get past this. Are you, are you standing on the word of God or are you standing on your own ability to quit something? Are you standing on what God says? In the book of Galatians chapter 5, we're told if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a promise. Maybe that's for you this morning. If I walk in the spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is a promise. And do you know what? Many people will look at that and go, I don't believe that. That's fine. You don't have to believe it, but you're missing out on the promise. You can say, no, that's not really a promise. No, no. In the beginning, we said this is God's word. We established it. So if God's word says it, I I can't then reject part of it. It's a promise. I'm going to stand on that. So the next time I find myself tested or tempted in in the flesh, how do I combat that? I go back to the promises of God. What promise has God given you to overcome that? If you happen to be using the one I just threw out there, I need to walk in the spirit. Not in the lust of the flesh. What's leading my life? Lord, I need your help. Recall the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever it might be. To take those promises and apply them to my certain situation. I encourage you to read your Bible and start digging. Start mining out the promises of God. Don't take it lightly. You've probably heard me say many times that we stand on the promises. We talk about the promises. They can't be my promises in your life. They can't be your mom's or your dad's or your wife's or your husband's. They have to be your promises. You have to go mining for that. And you know what that takes? Effort. It might mean you have to stay up a little later at night to read the Bible. It might mean you have to get up a little earlier. It might mean you have to come to church when you don't feel like it. It might mean whatever it means in your life, I'm going to put forth the effort to get out the promise. And then once I get the promise, now I have it. Who's going to take it from you? Nobody. Do you realize no one can take it away from you? When you have a promise from God that comes out of his word, it is yours forever. I don't want it anymore. Well, you can throw it away. You can stop thinking about it. You can let it go. Or you can just tuck it aside and go, you know what, I'm going to use that when I need to. I'm going to pull that promise out and I'm going to test it once again. And you know what I found? The promises of God prove faithful over and over and over again. It's not just once. You don't just go, all right, I'm having a problem. Here's my promise. Done. I got to throw that one away. I got to go find another one. No, it's yours forever. And the longer you, the more you find, the more you get to add on to that. What a blessing that is. You see, next week, as we pick up in verse 5, Peter's going to continue with giving us more tools to use in our walk. He's going to tell us, all right, you've got faith. Now I want you to add some things to your faith. I want you to add some more things, do a a few more things. But here's what we can't forget. The promises of God, the scripture says, are yes and amen. Yes and amen. The only question, the only doubt is it, do you believe them? Will you claim them and go get them? And will you hold on to them? Will you attest them and apply them? Or what will you do with them? I can't do that part for you. I can expose the gem, the nugget here, but you've got to go home and put it forth in your life. If you will, it will prove faithful. He's told us. He's given us all that we need for godliness in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? He's given all that you need in this life, in Christ. Do you believe that? Or is there something else that you're still seeking after that says this will, this will make me peaceful? This will make me happy? This will make me joyful? It won't, I assure you. 